Every entrepreneur has been there. Growing pains leads to growth gains. It's the challenges that cause us to level up. The Company Growth Podcast inspires you to keep going through the pain. I'm your host, Alicia Dominico. Our employees took massive pay cuts. The shareholders uh, didn't get any pay. We live off our credit cards. So there was a lot of help to uh, help us get through it. Peng Sang Ka's company girl story is about survival. She survived genocide, two wars, and even when her life was no longer in danger, years later she faced a near bankruptcy and her company suffered a 90% loss in revenue. I, I say this a lot to... Um people who ask me, should I start my own business, right? And what I say to them is, imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And if you have a spouse or if you have a family, make sure they are engaged in that conversation to be fair to them, right? So you imagine the worst thing that can happen to you. And if you can survive that, you can do anything, you know? So when people ask me, what's the worst thing you've gone through in your life? I say, well, if you take away the civil war that I survived in Cambodia, you take away the four years of the Holocaust, the Asian Holocaust that I survived with my family, you take away the uh, invasion of Vietnam in Cambodia, the second war that I survived in the refugee camp, and you look at just purely the entrepreneurial world because people can't relate to the horror that I went through the first 10 years of my life, but you can maybe relate to the entrepreneurial world I went through. Um, you know, the worst year that I probably had was uh, 2005. Um, you know, the beginning of the year was the birth of my son. I was working a day after he was born, um, but my company was at the verge of bankruptcy. And then at the end of the year, my mom ended up passing away, but I was able to uh, turn the company around and, and we survived. Um, and then I went through another horrific time in uh, 2012. We lost um, 90 plus percent of our revenue and I was going through an ugly divorce. Um, there was just so much happening. You know, you have, at that time I had two young kids looking at me like, oh, I'm gonna cry. And I always cry when I think about my children, what they went through in, in, in a divorce. Um, and then you have 103 employees looking at you because you just lost 90 plus percent of your business. And people, you know, and they're, they're looking to you as a leader to uh, to turn this around, to, to solve their problems. And you just got to grind your teeth and you keep pushing forward. And there are days that was so hard where I just want to curl up in bed and, and not get out and, you know, hide in there. But at the end of the day, you can't as a leader. As a leader, you have to appear as in many ways, you know, your, your employees know your pain, but you have to appear invincible and always have a solution and be prepared to execute those solutions. And in that time, in 2012, um, my sister um, said something to me that I have never forgotten. And because of that, you know, I can go through anything. And she said, you survived two wars in a refugee camp. Honestly, what can you not survive at this point? And that statement uh, kept me going throughout 2012. In 2005, um, that, the other horrible year, I had a little saying that I put up in my office and I read it every morning. And it says, everything is okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. And that's what it's all about, it's tenacity, right? Every entrepreneur, if they are truly honest, and we're not talking about the dot-com of the world, or the latest apps where you know, it's the next big hype, but true entrepreneurs, 
will always go through extreme difficult time at some point in their uh, business cycle. And if they are truly honest, they'll tell you about it. Some don't, some will. I think majority don't because they have to paint this heroic image of what an entrepreneur will be. Um, but they'll go through it. And what you have to keep in mind is that when whatever challenges that face you, it will come to an end. As long as you keep putting one foot forward, take a deep breath and try to, you know, try to come up with the next the solution to solve whatever it is. When we went through a really difficult financial time, my controller would, you know, especially in 2012, we had just came out of um, a very profitable project. And uh, his advice was take the profit, split between the shareholders and shut the company down. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it to my employees who've been loyal to me all this time. So we went through some very challenging time. We worked with our vendors, um, you know, after 2012 and um, my controller, uh, you know, <laughs> he used to come to me and go, oh my God, Peg. So I would say to him, you know, you need to just help me put my nose in the air for one second until I figure out a solution, right? So that's in reflection to, you know, cash flow is king. And if you don't have it, you will die. But you sometimes just need that little extra to help you to the next day. And then you got to figure out what to do the next day, right? As long as you have this mindset to keep moving one step forward, and sometimes you end up being two step back, but you just got to keep pushing and pushing. You will survive no matter what it is. And that's tenacity. That's entrepreneurship. And that's what it takes to make it. I was curious about Peng's experience working in manufacturing as a woman, since women typically make up only one third of manufacturing personnel. Yeah, so it's kind of funny. Uh, I've always been kind of the only female in uh, many of the boardroom I've been in um, because I'm in a space where it's in manufacturing, it's predominantly male. Um, it's very technical, so predominantly male, unfortunately. And uh, as a senior executive, um, there are very few female in, uh, you know, up atop. So it's been, uh, it's been an interesting ride. I asked her if she had any advice for young women who might be interested in going into untraditionally female careers like manufacturing. I'm so passionate about manufacturing and STEM in general, because to be blunt, that's an area where we're truly creating value, right? So whether you're an entrepreneur starting up a business, whether it's STEM or, you know, a mom and pop grocery store or manufacturing, you know, you're, you're, if you look back in your life, you want to feel that you've done something. You want to feel that you created something. And whether you're an entrepreneur or in manufacturing, I think you can truly feel that because when you're in finance, you're just moving money around. There isn't true value that you're creating for the economy and the, the betterment of humanity in our lives. I think, yeah, in the area that I'm most passionate about, I do truly feel that we are adding um, uh, value to our economy, to our engine, to the next generation. And uh, so I want kids to hear about it because particular with manufacturing, it has such a, a negative view for, um, for the young people, but it has changed so much. It's all about technology now. It's not the dirtiness of manufacturing that people have in their head. And I think it's important for young girls in particular to hear that 
you know, you can go into this field, you can go into it and uh, be part of something that uh, that's creating the, you know, the next whatever that's going to be that sh- shape our lives. And, you know, anything the STEM program does that. I asked her what advice she could give to entrepreneurs who are going through growing pains of their own. What would she say to them? My advice to my kids a lot of the time is, um, it's very simple, right? All good things come to an end and all bad things come to an end. It's just life. That's just life, right? So whatever it is, that is life. It's a cycle of circle of life and the cycle of life. So it's important to realize when you're when you're in, you know, whatever challenges that you're facing in your business and think how in the world I'm going to get through it, you know, focus less on what you cannot achieve and more on what, what is doable, right? And, and try to overcome that, you know, people get stuck in their fear. So it's important to try to overcome that fear to try to take the next step forward, whatever that may be. Um, and again, I truly do not believe that any entrepreneur that have, I'm not talking about the, you know, the um, companies that quickly raised money and quickly sold out, right? I'm talking about company that entrepreneurs who start out and actually ran their operation. And because with business, if you truly are, are you know, if you're truly building an enterprise, this whole idea of e-myth, right? You're either building a business to make a living. So like a bakery and you're just happy doing, you know, baking good bread because that's your, your areas of expertise, or you're trying to build a corporation that exists without you, right? The whole idea behind e-myth. If you're the second one where you're trying to build a corporation that has its own identity and its own entity that does not require you in that environment, it does not stop, right? So you'll, you'll reach a state of growth and you're already trying to figure out what that next stage is before you even reach it. So, you know, every stage there will be challenges. There's no, you cannot sit on your laurel. And because of that, you'll always, always reach a point. There's always gonna be high and there's always gonna be low, right? And um, again, I think if entrepreneurs are truly honest, they'll talk about that. And usually I actually do talk about pain points. I usually, my comment when, you know, I'm asked to be a guest speaker and the question is, is entrepreneurship, should everybody be an entrepreneur? And I usually say, no, it isn't for everybody, right? And it goes back to asking yourself that honest question with your spouse. What's the worst thing that can happen? And if you're not the type that can take that kind of stress, if you're not the type that can take that kind of challenges, then don't do it. It isn't for everybody, right? And it's important that we're honest about what it truly means, particularly with a technology-based company that requires heavy investment. There are gonna be challenges. Was there ever a time when you, what you thought would solve the problem was actually incorrect and you were wrong? I would say that over the you know 24 plus years as a CEO of Transformix, um, I'd be lying to say that every single one of my decisions were perfect and right on and solve every problem. I, I would you know I would be wrong in saying that, but it's really difficult to pinpoint you know which one were uh, maybe didn't work out as well as I hoped. Um, 
because the big decisions that we made were the right one. You know, major shift in 25, uh, 2005, major shift in 2009, major shifts in uh, 2012 to shape where we are. And the other thing is I'm the type of person that I never look back in life and think, and regret. I never do that. I make decisions with the best information that was given to me at that moment in time uh, by my executive teams, by my knowledge, my experience, my gut feel, you know, and that's one of the big thing I've learned to trust over the years, my gut feel. And uh, I move forward with the decisions I made. And, you know, if, if it didn't work out the way um, I completely expect it to. Nothing ever worked out exactly the way you expect it to. But if we're like 80% or 90% of where I thought we're going to be, that was great. And then I usually, you know, in my own mind, I do, um, well, I hike a lot. And my hiking allows me to reflect back on, you know, what lessons did I learn and how could I improve on it next time, right? So I don't ever look back at um, anything as a regret. I tend to look back and figure out what lessons, what were the lessons. And that's how we actually build a culture of innovation. Because if you punish people or you punish yourself for making a decisions, you get scared. And, and, and the worst thing I think leaders can do is refusing to make decisions because they're afraid. And I was never, I was never afraid. I, you know, I, I'm not a person who understands the word fear. Um, so, you know, I, when I have big decisions to make, I check a lot with people that I trust. I have a tight circle of uh, people that I trust. And I take a lot of time to think through multiple scenarios and I make the decisions. And uh, if it didn't work out the way, like I said, that I think it's gonna, or that I thought it was gonna work out, I tend to reflect back on the lessons learned rather than that being a mistake. I think it's so important to do that. Um, it's hard to know. I mean, I think everyone is always doing the best they can with the information that they have. It's hard to know that what you're doing won't work. And it's, it, it is important to go back and say, review it and say, what did I learn? Why didn't it work? How can I refine it to innovate? Um, but that's that dark night of the soul moment. And you have that moment where you're really crushed then you have these little sayings that you use to get yourself through it. And you look back and say, what were the decisions that I could have improved to keep going here so that, you know, I, I get to the right decision. I'm interested in that, you know, you're, you're making, you're bumping your head against the wall, making the wrong decisions and that process that you use to be like, okay, here's how, here's how I can course correct. I think the other thing about decision-making that um, caused people to freeze you know, is that they worry too much about other people's judgment on them, right? And I remember one saying to someone in the community who said, oh, you know, people think you're like a really smart CEO or whatever. And I said, you know what? The reality is I don't really worry about what people think because if the decision I make turn out to be brilliant because of the circumstances I cannot control, one was going to like, oh my gosh, she's so brilliant. But the same decisions that I made that, you know, the circumstance beyond my control, let's say COVID happened and it didn't work out, people might go, oh, that was the dumbest thing she's ever done. Regardless of the opinion, the decisions was made. I mean, I, I think that's really insightful. You, you're in the same situation and there's elements of it that you can't control. 
and whether, you know, if you do it right, everyone's going to celebrate you. And if you get it wrong, everyone's going to say it was all your fault. But either way, it happened. So, you know, there's only now. There's no point actually going backwards and, and uh, reviewing it except to learn from it. Next, we talked about Transformix's hardest year ever and what the company did to survive. Yeah, so prior to uh, 2005, uh, Transformix was selling mostly in eastern Ontario um, and a little bit in northern New York. We were doing custom automation. We were all things to all people and uh, therefore wasn't really a niche players. And what we found, what what everyone else saw in 2008 with the crash in the, the market, uh, we were feeling the pain um, as a custom automation company because we were doing about 45% automotive business. And so the automation, uh, you know, the automotive company were not buying automated equipment. And I knew we were in trouble when we went to uh, bid on a job uh, locally here in uh, Brockville. And we were bidding with companies that were global companies, companies that were 100 times bigger than us, and they were 30% below us. So I knew that we were in trouble at that point because when their overhead is that much bigger than us and they were 30% below us, they were buying business. And so um, that's kind of uh, the start of um, 2005 and we just you know there was there was there was just no project and uh we were lucky in the sense that so our employees took massive pay cuts the shareholders uh didn't get any pay we live off our credit cards um and family help uh, my family were uh amazing in terms of supporting us and uh, fortunately, the landlord was also my family, so we didn't pay rent for a year and they pay for utilities. So there was a lot of help to uh, help us get through it. But um, the pay cut from the employee was amazing. Um, I went to the staff and said, you know, talk to your spouse and um, each of you are in a different financial situation. Tell me what you can and cannot do. And we had people that took 50% pay cuts to uh, an employee said, Pang, I'm a single dad. I have, uh, I think it's like $100 extra every pay period. It's yours if you need it. And I said, no, I really appreciate it. But, you know, you keep that. Um, we pay them all back later on when uh, we turn the company around. So what happened in, um, uh, but sorry, the other thing that we were very fortunate, we had local clients that were loyal to us because we were good suppliers to them. And they had projects that um, normally we wouldn't quote on like, you know, welding staircase or, you know, that sort of stuff. We normally wouldn't take on those projects because that's not our areas of expertise. But uh, they gave it to us and we took it on. So I'll give you an example, you know, we had our, at that time we only had five uh, manufacturing staff and they they were the one that kind of kept the light open. And um, I remember this one time, and again, I was going to work a week after my son was born. I was carrying in and coming him into the office with a, and I had a playpen in my uh, office and two and a half year old uh, at daycare and um, so this one day I remembered um, my uh, VP of op, who was uh, now my ex-husband uh, at the time, came up to me and he said, I don't know what to do because we had this project that needs to get out and, you know, everybody's on pay cut anyway. How do I ask people to work overtime? Because we can't even pay them overtime. We can't even pay them 
for their full salary. And I said, um, well, what else is there to do but go talk to the guys? So I walked downstairs. Um, oh, I always get emotional when I think about this. It's, it's been how many years? And I just think these guys are so amazing. And by the way, they're still, uh, well, one of them is running the uh, new spinoff company called New Formix. So that's the loyalty I have. Anyway, so... So this, uh, so I went downstairs and the shop manager at that time, who is now the general manager at uh, New Formix, uh, I could see that they were in a meeting in a huddle. So he stepped out of that huddle and he walked towards me and he said, uh, you can go back to your office. Everything will be taken care of. I said, what does that even mean? Everything will be taken care of. He said, it'll be delivered on time. Don't worry about it. And they did. Send them this email and yeah, you can tell I get emotional. I sent them an email just to thank them and say, you know, you guys are amazing. And um, so, you know, I, I don't remember all the details of that email, but here's the part, Alicia, that is incredible because if you know uh, mill rights and machinists and, uh, you know, these guys are not uh, usually very verbal, but uh, they got together and they wrote me this email and um, in response to my email. And they basically said that as long as was leading company, they were going to stay around. So, you know, and, and those guys did. And we eventually, uh, once we turned the company around, paid them back. And, you know, so in 2012, when we, the uh, contract that we had that we thought was going to be um, a 15-year, sorry, the contract that we had at the time was a $30 million U.S. contract, sorry, $28 million, um, that was phase one of a 15 phase. So we thought the company was going, you know, hockey stick growth. And then in phase two, they stopped, but it was one of those things. It's never like obvious, they just drag everything out, right? So you'd never get a direct answer. Um, you know, we, we made quite a bit of profits the year before. And when we did pay it, we did give employees good bonuses. Um, the advice I had from many people, including my controller and family, was to shut the company down, take the profit and split between the shareholders, especially at the time I was buying out my uh, ex-husband as well. I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't do that to the staff who were loyal to me in 2005. You know, I was not going to abandon them. I want to thank Pang Sang Ka for being my guest on the season two premiere of the Company Growth Podcast. You can find her on Twitter at Pang Sang Ka. You can get more great stories like Pang's when you subscribe to the Tangible Words YouTube channel or follow us at anchor.fm slash the Company Growth Podcast for all future episodes on entrepreneurs who rise above the growing pains to get to growth gains. And if you've got a company growth story, please reach out to Tangible Words. We'd love to use this podcast to promote other companies who have risen above the challenges we always face as entrepreneurs and executive teams in business to make great companies.